Okay, how's that? Can everyone hear me okay? Okay, good. So now I have to say it right um, Yes, it's, a, it's a, a, a privilege to be back. Thank you so much for allowing my family and I to come back, asking us uh, to come back. We appreciate it very much. Um, it's always a privilege to uh, get to meet you. We were at the kids. Together afterward, I got to meet a few more families. I don't know if you were there, and a couple other familiar faces. It was really cool because I got to meet even more of the Ghana Liberation Church, and I don't have any some new friends, so it was really, really nice. So I want to make sure I stay in touch uh, with you guys uh, in the future. You guys are fantastic, so uh, thank you very much. Um, so this morning, uh, we'll be reading from Luke. Not John. And you can move around now. I can move around? All right. Yeah, you can. I can run around. Okay, so y'all will be reading from Luke, uh, not John. And that was my fault. I looked at the message and I said, John, did I do that? And I looked and I, I sent him John. So that was, that was my fault. That was fault. Um, so there are a lot of adjustments I'm making. When you're, um, it, you know, when, when you do anything, some of you know, like in, in, if you're in a profession or something like that, there's kind of um, sometimes tools that you use. You know, say if you're a photographer, you maybe have to choose like what camera system, or you know, if you're a musician, your software, or in the medical field. And so I'm um, kind of learning to use um, some new software uh, for you know sermon preparation and study and stuff like that. So if anything goes wrong today, I'm blaming the software. <laughs> so but it's, no, it was cool. So it's a bit of a learning curve. You kind of have to use it, but it's really nice, very very convenient in a lot of ways. Um, so thank God for that. Um, but thank you. It's a blessing and a privilege to be back. And today uh, we'll talk about the soil of the heart um, in Jesus' parable, uh, the parable of the sower. Uh, and it's uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. And so mainly I'll be centering on 4 through 8, and then 9 through uh, 15 is more of the explanation. It's when Jesus kind of gives the exposition and the explanation and kind of talks about what's going on. And we'll talk about that too, but the real core is we'll, we'll focus on the first part and we will talk about the, the second part as well. Um, there was a time back in 2013, uh, there were two families and they were on an extended vacation. So you can take these annual, you know, nice vacations. And uh, part of the vacation, I think on the tail end of it, there was a, a one-day bear viewing trip in Alaska. You know, where you go and you can see bears. You know, they have bush pilots that will take you out there. And so their plan was to fly to a lodge in the middle of nowhere in Alaska. And then after the trip, they were going to fly back to Greenville, South Carolina. That, that's where they were from. And there were nine people on the trip. So there was the, the pilot, uh, a doctor, and his wife. And then there are two kids, so teenagers, 17 and 14. And there was another family with three children, uh, 16, 14, and 11. So that's nine in all, so nine people. So it was a big, exciting trip. Uh, the pilot loaded up, uh, then the passengers boarded, and off they went. Uh, and just after takeoff, about 15 seconds after the plane left the ground, it started to slow down in the air. And it went from about 70 miles an hour to about 40. And this happened in about 10 seconds. And so if you know anything about flying, that's too slow. That's too slow uh, to stay in the air. So the airplane tilted you know, very far to one side, uh, so much so that the right wing was pointed directly at the ground. So that gives you a sense of uh, what it was like. And several seconds later, uh, the airplane crashed, and it burned. And the pilot and all eight passengers were killed. And so, of course, the question everyone asks is, well, what happened? You know, how, how did this happen? And so, the aviation safety authorities, they check all the usual categories. You look at the pilot physiology. Uh, they, they did a, a, a tox screening and find out, they found out that the, the pilot was not intoxicated or on drugs. Uh, the pilot had a current flight physical, so the pilot's health was fine. They looked at training. They looked at certification. Um, and... The pilot was properly trained and certified, so that wasn't a problem. Uh, they looked at mechanical malfunction. Um, I have a little bit of a background in, in aviation safety and stuff like that. You'd be shocked, you'd be amazed uh, at what uh, professionals can learn 
from a crash site. It's amazing, you know, because a plane, you know, if it blows up, I mean, it's smithering, I mean, there's nothing but, you know, burnt, charred, and you would think you can't make any sense of it. You'd be shocked at it. Because of physics and stuff like that, the way the planes are built, there are things that you can learn from a crash. It's, it's amazing. Uh, so they looked at mechanical malfunction, and an examination of the wreckage showed that there were no mechanical malfunctions. And so the plane was fine. They looked at environmental, you know, was it weather? You know, maybe visibility. Uh, birds account for a lot of crashes. Planes with birds a lot. That's a, that's a serious problem. And the weather was in acceptable limits. There were no problems there. And then, of course, there's a documentation and a paperwork. And so, uh, before the airplanes take off, there's paperwork that has to be filed. Uh, and it lists, you know, who's on the plane, what's on the plane, what it weighs, you know, whether it's hazardous material, all that kind of stuff. And the pilot filed that and did what he was supposed to do. Uh, he was an intelligent and skilled pilot, but that is where the problem was. And so, the problem is that the paperwork that he submitted was wrong. He estimated that the weight he loaded was 1,350 pounds when in actuality it was 1,750 pounds. And so that's 400 pounds heavier than expected. And so the plane's center of gravity was off, and all nine people died due to a very minor mathematical error. Very minor error. And so with that in mind, let's read Luke 8, 4 through 15. It says, when a large crowd was coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil. As soon as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produce a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones that have heard, and as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed of the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, countless people slip into eternity every day without ever hearing this without ever having this opportunity, without ever having the opportunity to make changes, to assess the state of our hearts and to adjust. And so today, the scriptures, in, in what Christ said here, are giving us that chance. He said, chance to do exactly what? To take stock of the condition of our hearts toward the Word of God, Because it's something that we all have to think about. See, you know, we just gave the example of that. That's a true story, you know, with the pilot and the crash. And so at this point, if you're hearing what I'm saying, you're now midair. So your flight took off already the day you were born. So we're midair now. We're midair. And think of it this way. While we're midair, you get a call over the radio, and someone says over the radio, Check your paperwork. Check your weight and balance sheet. So you're already taking off, and you're going to need to check and see. Uh, this is a this is a real thing too. Many times, their uh, aircraft will have trouble in the air, and they have to make certain adjustments when they land. So, for example, there are certain things that might happen. Here's a good example: the plane takes off, it weighs a certain amount, and when it lands, the fuel, the, the landing weight, 
is calculated based on, yeah, but you flew this long, and so by the time you land, you're going to weigh this much. So if something happens and they have to land sooner, you have a problem because you're overweight. So if you land and you didn't do that full duration, the plane in theory could be too heavy. So there are things that can happen mid-air where you go, we have a problem now. And so you get a call over the radio saying, check your paperwork. Double check everything, check your weight and balance. Because at some point, we're going to land. And we're doing the math, you and I, right now. Mid-flight, we're checking the paperwork now. And the reason we need to hear this today is because it applies to everyone. We have, there are no old people. We have seasoned citizens here, <laughs> middle-aged, young people, and we have young people with like you know, some teens, some preteens. So this is for everybody. This isn't just the, the grown-up sermon. This is for everyone here. And it gives us a chance to tell ourselves the truth about our condition, the condition of our heart in the life of God's Word. And so we're doing that math right now. It allows us to judge ourselves in light of eternity. So think of it this way. Um, I've been standing here, I think, for maybe seven or eight minutes. So 212 planes land every minute, according to the FAA. 212 planes land every minute. When one plane crashes, it's international news. Right? If some plane crashes in a country we never heard of, it's, it's on international news. It's a huge deal. It's a huge tragedy, and we hear about it worldwide. But what if, what if, what would happen to the aviation industry if most planes crash? Most planes crash, not one in I think it's thousands. It's very, very low. What if most planes crashed? How would that affect the aviation industry? We would be serious about it. We would say, "I'm taking my life in my hands," and I get on the airplane. Most of these things crash. And I know I'm not helping those of you that don't like supplies. It's not my intention, but I realize that's, that's what's happening. Most planes crash. Jesus says later on in Luke, in chapter 13, he says, think about this in terms of plane crashing. He said, as he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, and someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? That's a safe line. Are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That means, as an analogy, in terms of our lives, most planes crash. That's what that means. So this is, this is serious. And so this is one of our Lord's best-known parables. And here he described four responses to his preaching, or to the preaching, about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is just that. It's a kingdom. There's a king. There's news of a king. And so through the parable, Jesus teaches us that the human heart at any given moment, is in one of four states. That's the point of the text, is to demonstrate the four states of the human heart in order God's kingdom. No one, especially young people, no one is neutral about Jesus. There's no neutral. It's not a thing. No one is neutral. We're in one of four states. And he says that all who hear his words fall into one of these four groups I call the first one, he talks about it in verse 5, which is spiritually callous, or tough, kind of indifferent, hard. Then there's, in verse 6, those who are, you could call, superficially committed, spiritually callous, superficially committed. Verse 7, some have hearts that are what we could call sinfully competitive. We'll talk about that, sinfully competitive. And then the good soil, in verse 8, is supernaturally converted. It's supernaturally converted. And those are the four. There's four and there's no more. That's it. And if we're honest, we would agree. Now, one observation I'd like to make uh, before we go through these, there, there's a reason that they're listed in this order. Uh, if you think of it, 
when you're when a sower is sowing seed, you know, imagine maybe some of you have gardens or something like that, and you know that there's say there's a fence or you know a clearly delineated point where you go, this is you know my garden where I grow, and then that's the part where I don't grow. And a lot of times uh, the, there's a transition in the soil. So for example, if you're maybe right in the middle of the garden, you would say this is a good soft soil. It's tilled. It's, it's ready. You know, it's fertilized. It's ready to be. Uh, uh, seed is ready to be sown there, and then as you move away from it, it's not always a hard, you know, delineation like a like a grass and then a sidewalk. If you think of it, especially in this time, you have a walking path. So there's a walking path, and of course, say if you're going on a hike, there's the main part of the path you're on that everyone walks on, and that's the hard, you know, compacted. It's hard, and then if you move over just a little bit, you'll notice it begins to soften up a little bit. And then you finally get to the point where you're kind of off the path and it's just sort of wild, that kind of thing. So think of it that way. So there's a reason they come in this water. I have a patio in my backyard, and it's, you know, it's concrete, and so there's gravel and dirt right up against it, you know, and then there's a lawn. So the surface goes from hard to soft, and that's what we see here. So think of it as a walking path. Because a sower wouldn't sow seed on a path, right? You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't put the grass seed on concrete, but as the sower is sowing, it falls everywhere. So that's like this. There's a whole bunch of people in here. It's just going out. It's just going out. So it's kind of like that. And so, the four types of soil. So the first one he describes is, he said it was tramp the seed was trampled underfoot. Trampled underfoot. That's the hard soil. That's the spiritually callous. The sower went out to sow a seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. So the characteristics of this kind of soil, soil is our heart, our life, our attitude toward it, in difference to truth. The, the best response you may get is, hmm, yeah, that's, that's interesting, that's interesting, yeah. But God doesn't really touch the affections. You ever see that? Talk about sports or something, and person that lights up and they're all excited and you, for whatever reason, the conversation shifts to the gospel and it's, it shifts back to sports and it's, you know, something like that. So that's what, what we mean when we say the, the gospel doesn't touch the affections. It doesn't get me going. There's nothing growing there. It's, it's almost not organic. It's hard. Nothing can grow there. The, the ground is so hardened uh, that nothing penetrates it, nothing grows on it. They hear and they hear, but nothing. There's no life. You can you throw seed on it all day long. It's nothing, nothing, nothing. And so the path is hard, it's, it's compacted sidewalk. It's, it's like seed on a, on, on a sidewalk. It's open, it's exposed, the seed is unprotected, it can't go anywhere, it just sits there. The sower is fine, the seed is fine. Now notice the sower was careful to cover all the ground. Went all the way close up to the boundary. Some of the seed had fallen on the, the bare and trampled path. It was in contact with the earth. The seed was touching the earth. But there was no communion between the seed and the earth. There was no communion there. So people will come. Their worship is often mechanical. It can be cold, and they're here maybe because of custom. They're insincere, you know, the song's kind of okay, it's not pretty good, I like the little sound of them, you know, it's nice. So they, we bring our bodies and put them in the chair, but our minds and our hearts can be far away. And so the great truth here is, unbroken and hard hearts are not fit soil for a saving truth the saving truth of the gospel. They don't understand that God is offering salvation. It's a means of restoring us to him. And so the truth sits loosely on the surface of the heart. Satan is afraid of losing a victim, one of his victims. The birds come to feed the seed. So we have to ask ourselves, is that, is that the state of my heart? Is that is my life, my heart, my affections kind of look like that? Then there's rocky, shallow soil. These are the, what we call superficially committed. Verse 6, Jesus says, Other seed fell on rocky soil. 
it grew up, and it says as soon as it grew up. So it did grow. It withered away because it had no moisture. And so the thing, the thing intended here, the idea, is not that there's ground with stones in it that would not prevent the roots from going down, but it's ground where a thin surface of earth is covering rock. It's like you just look at it and go, oh, there's rocks and all that. It just looks like good soil. But if you go a little bit, you realize, oh, there's rocks under it. This is not just soil with rocks in it. Think of it that way. The seed uh, isn't, uh, excuse me, the seed isn't popping up quickly because the roots are strong. So it's not that, oh man, look at that thing grow. Wow, it's not that. It pops up fast because it doesn't have really good strong roots. There's ground where a thin surface is covering that rock. The soil is shallow, but the sun beating on it, just that quick scorches withers and it has no root. It lacks moisture. Because we know that's where plants get moisture is. There's no moisture. Uh, so we like to say it grows quick and easy, right? So if you're easy in, you're easy out. If it's easy in, oh yeah, I'm in, yeah, I did this, I did this, I'm in, I'm in. If it was that easy, probably easy out. I heard uh, Dr. Steve Lawson one time talk about a certain biblical doctrine, and he said, I believe this doctrine, you know, the doctrine of election, and he said, and I struggled, like for a long time, I had really struggled with that thing. You know, I was thinking, so he was in seminary, it was like three years, and he finally kind of kept studying, and he went, yeah, that's true. And he said, I struggled with that. Like, it took me a long time. And once you see that, it's very clear in Scripture. But he said, I'm kind of a little reluctant when people accept that too quickly. Because it makes me think, I don't know if you thought that through. I mean, you really thought about what the implications of that are. And so it's the same way. Sometimes if you accept too quickly, that's not good. That's not good. So you're easy in, you're easy out. Uh, people superficially impressed are, are apt to receive the truth with readiness and even with joy. But the heat of tribulation or persecution because of the word or the trials which that new profession of faith brings uh, comes upon them quickly and it dries up their relish for the truth. You only know what something is when it's tested. You only know what something is when it's tested. When you drive an automobile, let's say it's a new automobile, you expect it to work a certain way because you know you crash this thing, you've flipped it up, you've done all this stuff so that you kind of feel safe in it because it's been beat up. It's been beat up, it's been tested. So they are committed, but it's a bit of a superficial commitment. The ground's broken up, it's loose. The problem is that the seed falls in easily. But the problem is so does everything else. Everything else falls in easily too. It's easy. And so there's no discernment. It's, it's loose, it's exposed, easily pulled out, unprotected. And the roots can't go really deep because there's nowhere to go. The ground is shallow and it's loose. So they don't necessarily reject the word of God. They listen. Might even bend forward attentively, you know. They receive it with joy, but it's superficial. We have to ask ourselves, is this the state of our heart today? <coughs> so there's no perseverance. I heard it said one time, God will not look you over for medals or degrees or diplomas. He looks you over for scars. Scars. Then there's the third, the thorny soil. This is where there's sinful competition without sinfully competitive. Verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And he asked more. This is in, in Mark chapter 4. It's just a different telling of it. He says, And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in, or the pleasures of this life, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And so this is sinful competition, idolatry, uh, focus on maybe play or leisure or you know, self-satisfaction or just the, you know, the business of the world. We've got, the, we've got oil changes, lawns to mow, businesses to run, taxes to pay. You know, we all have to do these things. 
but they can become our everything. The pleasures of this life chill the word. And I, I struggle with how much to uh, talk about this one, so I'm going to try here. This could be a sermon in the state, but I'm going to try here. But uh, we the fastest history lesson in the history of history, okay? So there's sinful competition, idolatry, other things. Okay, they're competing with that. Uh, as an example, we have some rose bushes on the side of our house. There's you know grass over here, and then the roses are right here. But the grass, uh, I guess it you know as it grows, you know it, it's actually growing up by the roses. So when you look at the bottom of the roses, there's actually grass growing in the roses. So of course, there's only so much life. So the grasses, grasses are like stealing life from the roses, if you think of it that way. That's what's, what's going on. There's other stuff growing. And so the roses don't grow like they should grow. They look okay, but they don't look like they should look because there's other things growing around there. So you have to you know, take it out, really dig it out. So that's not the history lesson. Okay, so I want to focus on this part a little bit because this is Western civilization, you know, our pleasure, life, everything's pretty good, okay? So, for about 1,500 years, you had Rome, you had the Catholic Church, it was pretty much predominant, and the authority there was obviously the church and tradition. Then, you had the Protestant Reformation. Most of you know about that, you know what happened. And the idea there was that the authority of God's word was emphasized, right? So you went back to the scriptures and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a lot of stuff in here that's got to, that stuff's got to go. Of course stuff is right, a lot of that stuff's got to go, all kinds of stuff mingled in, get it out. Because the scriptures are the authority, right? Truth, the idea is that truth is transcendent, truth is outside of me, truth doesn't originate within me. It's, truth is outside, I have to apprehend truth. I don't go like, well, this is what I feel, so that's the truth. Doesn't work that way. Okay? So, general, very loose general concept of the Reformation. Truth is transcendent, originates outside of me, not from. Then you have the Enlightenment, okay, around 1650 to 1800. That's the most significant development in 500 years. Many things came from it, but if, if we sum it up again, somewhat of an oversimplification, the, the thinking that came along with the Enlightenment was a wholesale rejection of the Reformation, which is a complete whatever. That's all wrong. This is what shaped our society we live in, okay? And so there were two approaches to philosophy that came out of the Enlightenment. First was European rationalism. A guy named Descartes. You'll, kids will learn about him later. And the idea was that you attempt to understand reality starting with human thought. You know, I think, therefore I am. You've heard that, right? The second philosophy was the, this British kind of empiricism, this is John Locke. The idea was, you understand reality by starting with what can be observed in the external world. I understand what's right and true, what is, what is real from looking at the external world. Rather than being a thinker. So the empiricism, well, I can investigate. Okay? So our European worldview, now this is true of anyone in the world, but this is just how it applied to us, right? You first had the Roman Catholic Church that kind of said tradition is authority. Christ of Reformation said, no, truth is transcendent, so divine revelation is the authority. This is what I think, this is what I feel, we go, it doesn't matter. This is the authority. If I think this way, and this says this, you win, I'm wrong. Okay? The, the Enlightenment comes along and says, no, 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 no. External truth is not the authority. Humans are the ultimate authority of truth. Okay? So it's, it's human Primacy, like I'm number one. I'm the determiner of, of all things that are right and good and true. And so it says that science and rationalism are the highest authority. Okay, it's a rejection of the idea of revelation from God. And then from that you get romanticism, because now it's all about me. You know what I mean? As a human being, I am the center of the. I'm the arbiter of all truth. I determine, you know, what it is and what it doesn't tell me. You don't tell me. I tell Okay? So romanticism focuses a lot on the pursuit of happiness, you know, doing what makes us be fulfilled, right? And this is really what 
And again, I'm not knocking it because I live in this ethos and I appreciate it. But that's where we get stuff like we hold these truths be self-evident that all men are endowed by God with the right of life, liberty, and to pursue whatever makes you happy. That's not Bible. That's romanticism. That's the philosophy of romanticism. If you have a right to do that, that means, you know, Paul the Apostle could say, look, God, you're not making good on your promise. You said, I have, God never said, you have the right to life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness. I appreciate it. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I want it. I'm not knocking it. We, we live in that. But that's not necessarily divine in its origin. So when we have a lot, especially in our culture, is this idea that, yeah, there's God, but and so there's this competition, right? This sinful kind of competition, you know? Um, and it, it's not that, you know, serving Christ means you, you, know, you suffer and walk around in sackcloth and ashes or anything like that. Not at all. But we have to be aware that that's not necessarily what is, is promised. And so the, the fundamental problem with our culture, you know, and us as Americans, is that we're born into rationalism and then we're raised in romanticism. So we have this huge struggle with, what I want to do what makes me happy. And we don't understand that the purpose of man is to enjoy God. And through enjoying Him, we then become fulfilled. And this is why Jesus said, if you try to hang on to your life, you lose it. Remember, the man who tries to hold on to his life, he loses it. The man who gives up his life, finds it. So that's why even Paul the Apostle, with all the struggles, what did he say? He may talk about all the pedigrees and education, remember the prominence and everything he had, and he said, nah. he said, I count all that as, I don't care about that stuff. And you look at his life and you go, that was not, that's not romanticism, you know what I mean? Like, the life was not super, but in his estimation, he goes, yeah, it is. He said, this is awesome. Remember? He never complained. He said, I would do it a hundred times over again for what I gained in Christ. And so I wanted to stress that point because that's that uh, sinful competition that we experience so much here, especially in the Western world. There's a sinful competition because we're raised in this kind of romanticist environment that I have this right to just, it's about my happiness and fulfillment and all that stuff. And not what Jesus did. Read what Jesus said, it means to follow him. He goes, yeah, no, you have to become my servant. He said, if you love anything more than me, we don't deserve it. He said, you cannot have me. You can't be my disciple. Okay. So, that, that's the problem. So, any question you have, you know, I can answer by, by reason or science. And both of those ideas are flawed. Therefore, you don't need God to help you with either one. And the whole purpose of life is to pursue your own satisfaction and happiness instead of his kingdom purposes and glory. And that produces something called modernism, which is, is it's rooted in optimism. Because if logic and science is the answer to everything, all you have to do is be more logical and more scientific, and the world will become a better place. Well, it's 2022. It's not a better place. It's really not much different than it was in 1022. We just have, we can just see across the world with smartphones and see that it's not much better on the other side of the world. And so, the failure to live up to that promise produced what's called postmodernism, which is it's still about everything is science and logic, but it can't really fix anything. <laughs> so that's still the ultimate authority, but it ain't the answer. It's not, it's not doing good. And so that's where we, we are today, postmodern. So the idea is that the truth is relative, and so long as you're happy, whatever you believe is okay. Because the focus is on you and the pleasures of this life. And so there are things that are competing for dominance in our heart and in our lives. It is sinful competition. Am I on the throne? Or is Jesus on the throne? There's clutter in the heart. The wrong things grow strong and the right things never bud. There's seed there, but so what? Because there's no fruit. The fruit never comes to maturity. And that does no one any good. Man doesn't benefit, and God is never glorified. It's a wasted life. It's a wasted seed. Attention and energy are divided. 
So instead of seeking first the kingdom of God, Jesus is just kind of one of many things that I have to kind of balance. And Jesus mentions three things competing for the affections. Cares, riches, and pleasures. So we're either worried, greedy, or self-serving. It's all about me. Then there's the good soil. The supernaturally converted. Verse 8. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit. The fruit comes. There's fruit. And bear fruit with patience. So what does that look like? This is what's beautiful. It's fruit that we can see. Who doesn't like good fruit? It's sweet. It blesses others. The fruit that comes out reflects life and growth. The result of life and growth. You know, that is the end result of, of a, a beautiful process that came to fruition. It reflects life and growth. It reflects God's blessing, God's favor. You look at the branches and you see how full and bright you know, everything is. It's beautiful. It's budding. It's producing. The sower gets a return on investment. The man is blessed, and God is glorified. And there's life there. There's life. So the question that we're, we're drawn to in all of this is, what kind of soil is your heart? What kind of reaction to the truth about the kingdom of God are you having right now? Young people here today, this is not above you. This is not something so complicated that you can't understand. And that's a blessing. We're going to talk about that today. And so this is for all of us, whether we're seasoned citizens or middle-aged citizens or very young citizens, teens, even pre-teens, you understand this. So the part of our rationalism and all that, I'll give you a pass on this is for all of us. Now, I, I realize that at this point, this, this can sound a bit condemning. You know, it sounds a bit burdensome. You know, like, okay, great, so there's this, there's this, fine. Okay, so this is how I feel, what do I do? It's a bit burdensome, okay? The message here is not, what I don't want to convey is, come on, just work harder, be better soil. Come on, be better soil. That's not the message. This is not a, you know, get your act together, kind of message that's not what's meant to be conveyed. So I have some good news and I have some bad news. I'll give you the bad news first. The bad news is you can't get your act together. You can't. The good news is that you can't get your act together. You're asking, okay, well, who can help me? I'm glad you asked. So there's an important part of the passage that's often overlooked and Many don't realize that Jesus only says half of this publicly, and the other half he doesn't. So here's the account in Matthew. Jesus went out of the house, sat beside the seat. Because he's popular. So great crowds gathered about him. And so he goes, I'm running out of stage. So he gets onto a boat. So he gets onto a boat, and then the whole crowd stood on the beach. He gets a sower went out to sow. So he begins preaching. And then he said this. Remember he says, He who has ears, let him hear. Remember that part? Then it says, The disciples came to him and said, Why are you talking? Why, why, why don't you just say what you got to say? Like, why are you doing all this parables? Why are, why are you doing this? He, they, said, they said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And this is the part that's not hard to understand, but it's kind of hard to swallow. The disciples are asking him for the parables, meaning, why don't you just say what you have to say? Make this clearer, make it more plain. And what he does instead is he gives them the parable's purpose. And he answered the disciples, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given to know. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has is going to be taken away. 
That is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they don't see. And hearing, they don't hear. Nor do they understand. And so the master teacher, Jesus, is actually concealing the meaning. He's concealing the meaning. Why does Jesus do this? In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And it says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but you will never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they close. I want to see, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to see, I don't want to. Lest they should, their eyes are closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. And so the fancy theological term, this is called judicial hardening. You know, God is just judicial hardening. So Jesus is saying, you know, God is basically saying, you don't want to hear? Okay, I'll make you not hear. You want to ignore my words? I won't let you understand what I mean. You want to presume upon my grace that you can just pick it up when you feel like it, think again. God's grace is sovereignly bestowed. So this is a, the ability to understand, especially young folks, the ability to understand what I'm saying, and I believe in you, that's a precious gift. That's a personal gift of grace that God has given you to go, I, I get what you're saying. You don't get what I'm saying because you're smart. Well, yeah, it's smart. It's so plain. It's not plain to everybody. There are a whole bunch of people that go, I have no idea what that is. But a lot of us take for granted. So parables aren't designed to go like, oh yeah, I get it. Parables are designed to go, what? I don't get it. That's what they're for. So, in, in case that's not clear, I'll try to make it clear for you. Here, here's why Jesus spoke in parables. Here's how parables work. Uh, everyone is familiar with the security systems in a store. And we've seen uh, like a glass panel, and it looks like a mirror. And so we kind of know it's two-way glass. We know that there's probably a camera behind it or something like that. It's two-way glass. Okay? If you're on one side of the glass, you can see through it and you can see the kid picking his nose. Because he's just looking in the mirror. In the mirror. He only sees himself. If you're on the other side of the glass, you see them. So the person on one side of the two-way mirror sees everything. The person on the other side of it only sees themselves. They don't see anything. They can't perceive anything past that point. Just like two-way glass. Parables allow some to see things that nobody else can see. And for some people, parables, just like two-way glass, prevents them from seeing what other people can see. Because all it does is reflect their own image right back at them. So when you hear the parable of the sower that our Lord taught, what side of the glass are you? Are you on the side that will presume upon his grace? Will you respond in humble obedience above all? With gratitude that I can hear and I can understand. That's a result of his grace. That's a personal gift of grace that God is giving you if you can understand. Are you one of the people on the beach? Confused. I have no idea what... Uh, what does he mean? I don't know what he means. There are pigs in a boat. He's talking about sea, soil, and he's on a boat. I don't get it. There's no grass here. This is a shore. I don't know what this is about. Or are you one of the people with eyes blessed to see and ears to hear? So if you can understand the words of Jesus today, that means there is hope. That's good. That's good. If you have the ability to understand this truth, and you have the ability to evaluate your own heart, it means that you've been granted a gift from God Almighty to do that. Because not every, take for granted, not everyone can do that. 
you've seen that. I'm sure some of you've spoken to people about things. You may even have premeditated what you were going to say. You thought, I think this is clear as possible. And you would tell someone, and it's just, I mean, it, they have no idea what you're trying to say. Thinking, I don't know what my God is, but it's not that. It's not that. But we don't give up. We continue to pray. It doesn't mean we write people off. We continue to pray. So, I'm going to ask you, do you understand the weight and the gravity of the situation that we're being presented in? Where Jesus is allowing us to look at our hearts and assess that. And to examine ourselves, you know, to see where we really are. And I use the terms weight and gravity on purpose. Because if that pilot that we talk about could go back in time, what would that pilot change? He want another chance to evaluate the weight and the gravity of what he was doing. He would want the pilot would want another chance. He would want another opportunity to assess because technically that's an easy fix. It's not a huge fix. It's an easy fix. He would weigh again. He would measure again, and he would make sure that his estimation was right. Because he knows the limits of that aircraft, and he knows the minute I take off, if I'm overweight, it's not going to work. I have to be within a certain weight. These engines only do so much. And so what we are being asked after the takeoff is, did we estimate correctly? Did we make a correct estimation of things? Because now we're midair. We're already here. We've already taken off. And at some point, all of us are coming in for a landing. We're going to land. Some of us sooner than later. But we're all going to land. One thing I want to encourage you to is imagine, it's a hypothetical, imagine you were there that day, and say you weren't flying, but you were there, you are part of this process for this pilot to take off. And imagine if somebody just said, so, Jacob, did you... Uh, did you do all your free flight paperwork and weight and balance checks? Jacob goes, yeah, I did. Imagine the difference it would have made if somebody would have said, you should double check it. I mean, just, just double check it. It takes two minutes. Just double check it. And the pilot goes, sure, it doesn't hurt me. Couple seconds, double check it. It's an easy fix. So that's how much, your, how much weight and, and gravity your words can carry with someone else around us and just say, how are you doing? I had a brother ask me the other day, he would say, how are you doing? He said, so tell me, how is God working in your life? <laughs> I thought, well, that's a different question than how you're doing. And I said, well, you know, and I had to kind of think about it. You know, he said, how is God working in your life? What is, what is, your, what is your prayer life like? He's just a brother. He's not, you know, he's just a fellow brother. He just asked that question with all sincerity. And so we can prevent or help, we can be God's instruments to help others avoid a bad landing uh, by simply talking to the people around us, encouraging the people around us, encouraging those around us to evaluate our hearts. How are we doing? How's your heart doing? You know, questions like that. I get asked that all the time. How's your heart doing? The pastor asked me that question. Well, how's your heart doing? Are you doing very explicit questions? Are you doing this? How's it? it makes you realize that you're not doing that. You're evaluating that. help. So there's good news. I don't want to leave you unsure. I don't want to leave you without hope. I don't want to leave you despairing. Here's, here's the good news. In John chapter 6, verse 37, if you would turn there. John 6, verse 37. Jesus says, Jesus says, I'm, I'm beginning at verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. 
and this is the hope. This is the good news. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So if we do turn to Christ, if we do renew our commitment, if we do reevaluate, your desire to do that most likely is coming from God Himself. He's drawing you back to Himself. And so we never have to say to ourselves, well, okay, I'm going to turn to Christ. I don't know. Because Jesus said, all who the Father gives me are going to come to me. And he's not, no one ever comes to Jesus and he kicks them out. No one ever comes and goes, no, 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 not you, not you, you're out. If you're coming, that means most likely that God is calling you to do that. So realize that it is God drawing you to himself. So we're being asked before takeoff, did we estimate correctly? Take some time, please, in the coming days as, as we go about our lives, work, school, parenting, husbanding, wifing, brothering, sistering, grandparenting, business owning, tax paying, lawn mowing, you know, all the, the things that we have to do just as a normal course of life. Never get too busy to take time to stop and say, what is the condition of my heart? What is the state of my heart? Lord, I want to be good soil. Help me to not be self-deceived. Please, I want to be good soil. Work in my heart. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for the time together today. I thank you so much for this church faithful people who are leading and working for shepherding people. I pray uh, for the inbound pastor and his family that you would greatly, greatly use him and sanctify him for the work of the ministry here and that the people here would be a blessing to him. He would be a blessing to them and mutually as a family we would all grow in grace. I thank you for my brothers and sisters, my new brothers and sisters that I have to meet here, my new family, uh, and let more and also privileged to be here. God, I thank you so much for that. I ask that you to continue to bless this assembly and make uh, their mission and their vision here in Leavenworth really clear so that they know why you have a plan here and what it is that you want them to do and that they will be effective and they will be fruitful. 